Welcome, we're so glad that you're joining us as we continue our four series here at the Walla Walla University. If you've been following along with us for the last few weeks, you know that we are in a series called Practicing the Way of Jesus. And practicing the way of Jesus really has three very clear, simple, but not simplistic end goals. The first is that in practicing the way of Jesus, we are with Jesus. The second is that we become like Jesus. And the third is that we become, we do what Jesus did. Or to use the language of John in Revelation, we follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And so today we will continue that journey of being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. And today our sermon will be speaking about what it looks like to do what Jesus did. Join me as we pray. Father in heaven, we come expecting your spirit to do much in our lives. Lord, we pray that you will quiet the voices of our mind. We pray that you will move to the side the anxious thoughts that we may have. For some who are watching today, it is a moment of respite. For some, it is a moment of turmoil, but we are grateful that you meet us however we come into this uh, moment of worship. So Lord, as we encounter you, the risen Christ, in your word, we pray that you will speak clearly and that each of us will be changed as we encounter you through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the human has a, I think, a perennial need. Every single human being has a perennial need to have a sense of what life means. We have a perennial need to know how to live and how to live well. Whether we are living here in the Walla Walla Valley, whether we find ourselves in Washington, D.C., whether we are in Boston or in Bombay, whether we are in Los Angeles or in London, whether we find ourselves in Cleveland or in Calcutta, each of us as a human being has a perennial need to know how we should live and how we should live well. And when we are in moments of instability, it pushes us to recognize that the illusion we may have that we are living well simply by virtue of being American or being Armenian or being Adventist really does not cut muster. We need something deeper so that we can deal with the dissatisfaction that is often attendant with a Western way of approaching life and Jesus Christ paints a picture and gives an invitation for his disciples on how we can live. Jesus often calls this way of living an abundant life, a full life, the good life, the kingdom life. And we all find moments in our life when we will uh, find our dissatisfaction moving us to find ways in which we can live and act that will bring more respite, less anxiety, and more fulfillment in our lives. For some of you who are watching, you will remember those old ancient things called bookstores, a place where you would physically walk into a building, and that building would be lined with physical books, not e-books, not Kindle books, but actual books. There would be shelves on the wall, and they would even have places where you could go and buy a book uh, under a certain category. 
And there are many of us who can remember moments of our deep dissatisfaction, perhaps going to a bookstore and trying to find a book on how to be a better spouse, how to be a better husband or wife. Or perhaps we found ourselves in a particularly difficult class and we wanted to find a book that would help us to be a better student or a book to be a better musician. We've all wanted to find times in our life when we have been dissatisfied so we can unlock the potential into being a better athlete or how to be a more profitable businesswoman. We have all had those moments. And I think you'd agree that information is useful, and information can be useful, but only to the extent that it's applicable to our lives, and only to the extent that it makes a difference in our day-to-day -day living. Or we might find ourselves in the situation that Peter Drucker uh, explains when he says, there is nothing so useless as doing efficiently that which should not be done at all. And this may speak to some of us when we think about our lives, that we have propped up ladders that we have climbed and got into the top of some of those ladders and realized they were propped up against the wrong walls. Or we may have lived our lives recognizing that as apprentices or disciples of Jesus, our lives do not have the savor of the rabbi and of the savior that we follow. So today, we want to look and see what the Bible tells us and what Jesus shows us and enacts for us so that we might know not merely how to be with Jesus, but how to uh, become like Jesus and ultimately how to do what Jesus did. In Matthew chapter 4, we find uh, an interesting story, and it's the launching of Jesus Christ and his ministry. And Jesus begins in Matthew chapter 4 by calling some disciples, and you can find that in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 18, which I'll read for you. I know we had a lot of the scripture reading, but I'll go over some of these texts again as we build the sermon this afternoon. So Matthew chapter 4 verse 18. Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Verse 19, then he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat, and their father followed him. Left their boat, excuse me, um, and their father, and followed him. And so we find Jesus beginning in Matthew chapter 4, this process of calling disciples, calling students, calling apprentices into the way of Jesus. And then when we get to Matthew chapter 5 through to 7, we see Jesus taking some of these disciples that he has called, and we're given the names of some of them. He tells them, now that I have called you, 
and for two chapters, he engages in this magisterial sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount as the new Moses recapitulating a new Israel and a new kingdom. And he says, this is what life looks like when you are following me. This is the alternative kingdom. This is the new um, this is the new way in which you are to orient and live and direct your life. And the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 to 7 has some incredible high peaks in the New Testament. We have the Beatitudes as Jesus tells us who has access to the kingdom who has otherwise been left out. We have the Lord's Prayer as Jesus models for us how we can be in conversation with the Heavenly Father. And so Jesus Christ, having called his disciples, some of his disciples in Matthew 4, then teaches and shows them what the kingdom is like in Matthew 5 to 7. And then finally, in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, after telling his kingdoms about the alternate way, about the kingdom of God, Jesus then takes those lessons, if they were in a classroom, he takes them out from the classroom and into the field. And in these chapters, Jesus begins in his ministry to do some incredible things and to enact the kingdom. So I've told you about the kingdom, now I'm going to show you what the kingdom looks like in real life. And then Jesus begins doing some incredible things, and we will go through some of these incredible things Jesus does as his disciples follow him in his kingdom. So what does Jesus do? Jesus heals. For example, he heals lepers who have been left out of society. Jesus heals a centurion's servant, healing the enemy's servant. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law from a fever, showing Peter that he can take care of his family. Jesus heals a paralytic who has been immobile his entire life, shocking the sensibilities of the religious elite. Jesus casts out demons from a demoniac who has been heretofore on the outskirts and marginalized from his family and from all of society. Jesus shows that he has the ability not only to rightly order the bodies of humanity, but also to deal with nature when it becomes disordered. And Jesus calms a raging storm. Jesus restores sight to the blind. Jesus restores hearing to the deaf. And Jesus gives life to a young girl who was dead. And all of these things are showing the disciples this is what the kingdom looks like. It's not merely spiritual. It's not just pie in the sky. When the kingdom of God enters your life, when it breaks and dawns, it dispels light. It makes a difference in the lives of those it touches. And so Jesus gives life to this young girl who was dead before. And Jesus also, as he shows um, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 9, his kingdom calls more disciples. And let me pause there because in Matthew chapter 9, we find Jesus who has called uh, some of the disciples, calls another one. And this one, I'm sure, would have been met with a lot of chagrin. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. 
so he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and with sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Matthew's case has always been um, an interesting one for me. I think that if I had been a disciple of Jesus and Matthew had been brought in, you know, imagine that you're all with Jesus, you're sitting down having a good conversation, and then you're walking with Jesus, and Jesus sees Matthew, and he says to Matthew, come and follow me. You would probably want to nudge Jesus and say, whoa, 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 Jesus, let's, let's slow down a second. Do you know who you just called to follow you? This, this call to Matthew would have been the equivalent of Jesus during uh, Nazi Germany calling a Jew who had become an informant for the Gestapo. There would have been so much hatred that he would have given his talents and his ability, given from God, to help the enemies whose boot was on the neck of Israel. And yet Jesus Christ calls Matthew, and he brings him and says, you are going to be one of my disciples. And so Jesus is teaching them all over. Jesus is breaking barriers. He's pushing down walls, and he is both enacting and announcing and showing the kingdom of God. And so he calls more disciples. And when we get to Matthew chapter 10, you see Jesus has by that time gotten 12 of his disciples together. Jesus also teaches about the kingdom in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, telling people in parables about the kingdom, about how the kingdom is like a sower who goes to sow seed, about how the kingdom of God comes and makes a difference. And then Jesus Christ sends his disciples after he has taught them to do what he has done. And if you go to Matthew chapter 10, you will find Jesus Christ calling his disciples and sending them into the world. In fact, I can imagine that Jesus Christ perhaps one day after um, speaking with his disciples calls them and he says, listen, I have something for you to do. Um, I have something that I want you to do now that you have watched me and now that you have um, been with me. But before we get to that, let me read a quote for you on what the kingdom um, really means. Jesus announced, enacted, and inaugurated the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is not the kingdom in heaven. Key point. The kingdom of heaven is not the kingdom in heaven, which means when we push the kingdom um, of heaven and say it's only in the heavens, we allow such a great distance to be made between our real everyday lived life and the reality of the kingdom that we say, oh, it's just spiritual. This makes no difference to my life. But the kingdom of heaven is not the kingdom in heaven. So what is it? But it is the kingdom that comes from heaven. It's the ethic, it is the way, it is the alternate way of being that comes from heaven, but it comes to earth. It is the saving alternative to the death-dealing empires of the fallen world. Thus, the kingdom Jesus brings is not from the world, because it's not death-dealing, it's actually life-giving, but it is for the world. 
And then uh, Brian Zand concludes and says, what Jesus' kingdom most certainly is not is a spiritual kingdom, but the kingdom of Christ is for here and it is for now. And Jesus Christ with his disciples would have driven this lesson home over and over again that the kingdom is for now. You can imagine Jesus when he called um, uh, uh, Peter saying, come and follow me. And then he said, who's that person with you? Oh, his name is Andrew. Andrew, come and follow me as well. And when they followed Jesus, my friends, I've said this and I'll repeat it, their lives had to change. They could not follow Jesus as a part-time endeavor. They did not follow Jesus two or three hours a week and for the rest of their life live in exactly the same way that they had done before. When they followed Jesus, they had to uproot their life. They had to reprioritize their loves. They had to make changes in their social connections. They had to be challenged in, 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 in their thinking of who was in and who was out. Following Jesus meant something. And following Jesus meant that they followed his lifestyle. And following Jesus meant that they adopted his practices. And so I can imagine that the disciples in following Jesus, for example, would have recognized that every single morning when Jesus wakes up, he seems to find time to be in prayer, and they would have done likewise. They would have seen Jesus and realized that Jesus went from table to table, eating with people that they would never dare be caught dead around, and they would think, Maybe this is what we need to do. They'd have seen Jesus memorizing Torah, and they'd have said, perhaps we need to memorize Scripture. They'd have seen Jesus celebrating Sabbath with freedom, unencumbered by legalistic shackles, and they'd have realized, truly, Sabbath was made for us and not us for the Sabbath. They would have seen Jesus' life, they would have adopted Jesus' life, and they would have practiced Jesus' life, and they would have lived together in a sense of radical hospitality. And so, as they live this life, I can imagine that one day, as they are with Jesus, certain things begin to happen. And let's put this up. This is what would have happened as they are uh, living with Jesus. By being with Jesus, the disciples became like Jesus, and as a result, they change and begin to do what Jesus did. It's a simple progression, and I don't mean by using this progression that life is so clean and linear that it will be the same for us. Of course, it's going to have moments where we feel aridity, where we don't move forward. There's going to be moments when we're taking steps forward, some when we feel stuck, and others when we're going back, but this is the progression that Jesus takes his apprentices to, and I believe the same holds true for today. And then I can imagine that one day Jesus Christ, maybe he's just finished a meal with the disciples, maybe they've just come from a walk, maybe Jesus has done something that has caught their attention, but he says to the disciples in Matthew chapter 10, um, friends, I think it's time. And I can imagine the disciples looking at each other thinking, what's he talking about? It's time for what? And then Jesus speaks to these ordinary, uneducated, unschooled and undisciplined disciples that he has called. And he says probably, Peter, Peter, yes, you, Peter, Peter, Simon, 
Peter, my spirit is with you. My spirit is on you. So what I need you to do is go out, and I need you to go and heal that man over there, Peter. And Andrew, Andrew, don't go with Peter. There is a demoniac in the town across, so go over there and cast the demon out. And John, yeah, John, don't, don't leave, John. I need you to go to Bethsaida or Chorazan. You can decide, but go to Bethsaida and preach to them that the kingdom of God is here, that the kingdom of God is near. Preach to them that there is an alternate way to live preach the good news. And then he probably says to them, now go, and we'll rendezvous back here in a couple of weeks. You know, if you want to take some notes, that's fine. And then when you come back, we will debrief. Because Jesus Christ was not simply um, engaged in the jug-to-mug way of thinking, where he is the jug pouring information into the receptacle mugs of the disciples' brain, and they do nothing else with their lives. Jesus taught them. Jesus had the disciples be with him, and when they became like him, it was all toward doing what Jesus did. And so we find in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 to 8, Jesus sending his disciples. He says this, now these twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's good news. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. And so Jesus, having told his disciples about the kingdom in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew 5 and 7 on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, after showing them what the kingdom looks like when it is inaugurated and breaks into the ordinary lives of people, the healing and the restoration and the life and the dispelling of darkness and the right ordering of disordered nature, Jesus, after telling and then after showing, sends his disciples and says, do what I have told you, do what I have shown you. And then, years later, a moment comes when Jesus Christ comes to his apprentices, and we find this in Matthew chapter uh, 28, Matthew chapter 28, what we would uh, ordinarily call the Great Commission, verses, six, verses 18 to 20, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so you see Jesus Christ has found these disciples. He has called these disciples. He has taught these disciples. He has shown these disciples. And then multiple years later, after in, in, in fleshed, excuse me, endowed with the Spirit, Jesus then says to them, as he is about to leave and go back to the heavens, I'm going to send a comforter who is going to be with you. The Spirit of God will be with you, but now go make disciples 
Do what I have been doing with you. Go and make disciples. So Jesus is following a pattern, right? And, I'm, and I think you picked it up in my language. He's following a pattern that social theorists have long recognized is important for formation. It's a four-step process of apprenticeship. It's this idea that I do and you watch, then I do and you help, and then you do and I help, and you do and I watch. And when you read carefully the story of Jesus, you see Jesus Christ taking the disciples through this. And this is crucial. My friends, when I realized this, it changed the way in which I engaged with Christ, and it changed what for me had been a very cerebral type of religion into recognizing Jesus did not only want me to have the right answers. Jesus was not simply getting me ready for a cosmic pop quiz at the end of time. Jesus was not simply going to see if I could do Bible studies, but Jesus was leading me through a process of maturation so that I first, as I read and I am with him and I, and I see what Jesus is doing, that Jesus then calls me into partnership with him. That Jesus Christ ultimately wants me and wants you, if you see yourself as an apprentice of Jesus, to make other disciples, to make other apprentices of Jesus. And it is this four-stage pattern that we find in the language of Matthew distilled as go make disciples. And this is the pattern we see Jesus map out, and it is crystal clear that the goal of apprenticeship, the end goal of apprenticeship of Jesus is to make disciples, and it is to do what Jesus did. This week, I received an email, and I'm sure some of you received the same email if you're here in the Walla Walla community. It came from Walla Walla University, and it was an email that um, told us about a number of things. I think it's the daily announcement. And one of the announcements, I saw that the university auto shop was reopened, and they were asking for people to bring their cars so that students who are in the auto program would have an opportunity to fix their cars, right? To be able to know how to diagnose your car. So they were saying, guys, ladies, friends, everyone, it's open, bring your cars. And I immediately thought, this is it. This is apprenticeship. This is the four-stage process. This is what Jesus is calling us to do. What do you mean, Andreas? Well, listen, if you are an auto major and you do a three to four-year uh, mechanic apprenticeship, you don't do it so that at the end you can come out and simply um, uh, uh, have knowledge that you do nothing with. If you're a physician and you've gone to undergrad for four years, you've gone to medical school for four years, and you've done an internship, and then uh, you've done some additional specialization uh, or, or residency and then specialization, and you spent 10, 12, 15, 20 years of your life, you don't take that information simply to sit with it. An auto mechanic does not go into apprenticeship so that after three or four years, if they are watching Top Gear or watching the Grand Prix, they can know what type of car is driving. Or they can hear, if they watch a YouTube video, why the engine is making a clicking noise. It's beyond that. They become a mechanic and go through an apprenticeship to become a mechanic so that they can diagnose cars. 
so they can fix engines, so they can do maintenance. A physician does not go through this so that at the end of 10, 15, 12 years, they can watch Gray's Anatomy and they can know all of the crazy long medical terms and live tweet it for their friends to show how smart they are. They don't do that. The point is obvious, right? A mechanic becomes an apprentice. A student becomes an apprentice so that when they come at the end of their three or four years, they can be a mechanic who can do what mechanics do. And a physician so that they can do what physicians do. And yet, we so quickly pass over the call to be a disciple as Jesus apprentices his disciple is to do what your master did is to do what your master called you to. And what did Jesus do? Now, we know that uh, becoming an apprentice does not happen instantly. We know that becoming an apprentice does not happen apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We know that being an apprentice is not a way to uh, accrue brownie points. It's not meritorious so that we can say, well, Jesus, look at me. I can do all this really good stuff. Now you must love me, and now you're going to give me more points. No, it's not. It is the call of Jesus and it is a call into a new ethic, into an alternative lifestyle, into a subversive kingdom. And what is it that Jesus did? And what is it that perhaps, and this is going to be difficult as we read through the Bible, that's all we're doing here, reading through the Bible to see what Jesus is calling us to do. Here's a few things. This is not an exhaustive list. The first one, preaching the gospel. And this is interesting because this is all disciples, not some disciples, preaching the gospel, teaching about the kingdom of God, healing the sick, casting out demons. I am so sure that some of you who are sitting here thinking, wait, what? Time out. You're telling me, no, I'm not telling you that. I am just going through what Jesus Christ did and what Jesus Christ gave his, gave his disciples the ability to do and extrapolating from that, that for us to live our life and to do what Jesus did means to do what Jesus did, so casting out demons. Eating with people far from God. Some of you are like, yeah, I can do that. I'm good. Might skip the other one. I can definitely eat with people far from God. Fasting. Another one. Praying. And then doing justice. You see, Jesus doing this all the time, doing justice, and also subverting religious and political corruption, and finally, peacemaking. All of these things are what Jesus did. All of these things, Jesus empowered his disciples, his apprentices to do. It may not happen immediately. It may not happen right away, but these are the things that Jesus Christ did and Jesus gave his disciples the ability to do. And some of you are thinking, this is insane, Andreas. There is no way. It's absolutely ridiculous. You really think that just because we're disciples of Jesus, he wants us to have a life that is more than just believing in him. Yes. Wait, hold on. You really think that being a disciple of Jesus means that we don't just accrue information and then live our lives in the same way that anyone else who doesn't spend three hours a week in a building lives? Yes, 
Wait, wait, wait. So you're saying that following Jesus means that there is, um, there is a sense in which with the Spirit of God inside of us, we should be able to perhaps do some of these things that his disciples did when the Spirit of God was in them. Yes. Okay, Andreas, but the problem is Jesus was not just man. He was God, right? And the last time I checked, I wasn't God. So you're asking me as a disciple to do some of these things, but I'm not God. Good point. Let me take the point just for a couple of moments. It's an unfortunate reality that for many Christians, for many of us, and some would say that it's really a, a byproduct, an unfortunate byproduct of the Enlightenment. And so a few centuries ago, we moved from taking the words of Jesus seriously and saying these words of Jesus are actually a pattern for us so that we might know how to live so that we might understand it's a template for a new way to be human. But instead, we jettisoned that, pushed it aside, and instead, we took the words of Jesus and made an apologetic out of it, meaning that we needed to prove Jesus because there were people who were saying he wasn't divine. And so we moved from taking the words of Jesus as a template in which to live a new life, and instead, we began to defend Jesus. So we'd say things like this, well, Jesus was definitely God, and of course we know Jesus was God, because he was able to heal the sick, that proves his divinity. Because he was able to multiply food, that proves his divinity. Because he was able to raise the dead, that proves his divinity. And it's true. The problem is this type of reductionism hits a snag when you read the New Testament carefully. Because my friends, you see the disciples of Jesus given the same power and authority and doing many of the same miracles that Jesus did in the Gospels and also in the book of Acts. And they were absolutely not divine. They were not God, but they were human. Let me continue. Then you may say, well, I mean, but Jesus did, did do some stuff that they didn't do, right? I mean, Jesus commanded the wind and the waves. And I'd say, yeah, yeah, that's true. But when you read the Bible, you find that Moses and Joshua were also used by God, and they had command of the elements when they parted the Jordan and the Dead Sea. Uh, okay, well, Jesus multiplied food, right? Who else did that? Have you read the stories of Elisha and, and, and Elijah? Have you read the stories of them multiplying food and letting oil continue longer than it made any sense? Uh, so... Our arguments when we become reductionistic break down because it was not simply that Jesus was divine. Of course, Jesus was divine, and that is the most important thing, that Jesus is our Savior and not just an example. But we must recognize that Jesus Christ was a true human, not an avatar. And as he was empowered by the Spirit of God, he was able to live a life. He was able to live a new ethic. He was able to live in such a way that when he came to the end of his life, he could look at his disciples and he could say, because the comforter has come, live in the way that I have lived. And my friends, I would be remiss if we did not end by asking you to think this week of this list of the many things that Jesus Christ has done, to think and to commit and to say, Lord, 
I'm recognizing more and more as we've gone through this series that this is not merely about information. It's about transformation. It's about my actions. And I recognize that this can only be done through the Spirit. Let me put up one, one last slide as we conclude here. And this is really just a, a simple way to try to understand what it might look like as we think about this idea of transformation, this intentional heart formation that comes as a cause of practicing the way. Yes, it comes through teaching, but it's also important to understand that it comes through practice, that it touches our life, and it can only happen through community. And the very middle of this shows that it all happens as we are empowered and we are moved by the indwelling spirit. And it is a journey of a lifetime that happens over time through our life experiences. So this week, my prayer is that you will engage, that you will follow the way of Jesus, you will practice the way of Jesus, and in the week to come, we might be salt and light in our community, making a difference in a world that truly needs it. Amen.